This is a recording of How Not to Read Isaiah by John Gee, published in Interpreter, a journal of Latter-day Saint faith and scholarship, read by Richard Fligger. How Not to Read Isaiah by John Gee Abstract In the Book of Mormon, Nephi draws upon his own knowledge of the Jewish people, their culture and language, and the surrounding area, to add his understanding of Isaiah's words and commends that approach to his reader. In his book, The Vision of All, it is clear that Joseph Spencer lacks knowledge in these topics and it negatively affects his interpretation of Isaiah. Specifically, this lack of knowledge causes him to misinterpret the role of the Messiah in Isaiah's teachings, something that was clear to Isaiah's ancient readers. Recently, Don Perry reviewed Joseph Spencer's book on Isaiah in what to this observer was a kindly and understated but also critical way, pointing out particularly Spencer's inability to read Hebrew. Years ago, James Falconer, Spencer's undergraduate mentor, had a rule that he would not allow his students to write commentary on a book of scripture unless they controlled the original language of the text. This is a laudable ideal and obviously has much to recommend it. While knowledge of Hebrew is not a prerequisite to study Isaiah, it is very helpful, not least for avoiding serious errors, if one wishes to write about Isaiah as a scholar. Perry's review deserves some additional comment because, if anything, Perry was not critical enough. Toward the end, in this review, I will add to the conversation by focusing on just one chapter in Spencer's book. The Things of the Jews Not only is Hebrew highly desirable as preparation for writing about Isaiah, but the Book of Mormon points out other prerequisites to understanding Isaiah. It is worth reviewing these, particularly since Spencer seeks to focus on Isaiah in Nephi's record. Nephi instructs his readers, The Jews do understand the things of the prophets, and there is none other people that understand the things which were spoken unto the Jews like unto them, save it be that they are taught after the manner of the things of the Jews. 2 Nephi 25.5 Therefore, someone who wishes to follow Nephi's method ideally needs to know the things of the ancient Jews, like their language, through philology their script, their culture, their history, their material culture through archaeology, their poetry, and their rhetorical patterns. In short, one needs to be, quote, taught somewhat in all the learning of Nephi's father, as it says in 1 Nephi 1.1. Nephi also notes that he knows, quote, concerning the regions round about, that'd be 2 Nephi 25.6, From Nephi's own words, it can be extrapolated that one also needs to be familiar with the culture surrounding the lands of the Jews. Isaiah provides two lists of these. One is the major sections with prophecies against major nations. The other is the list. Quote, from Assyria, and from Egypt, and from Pathros, and from Cush, and from Elam, and from Shinar, and from Hamath, and from the islands of the sea as in Isaiah 11.11. Meeting these requirements requires a great deal of effort, more than most people want to invest. Still, even if no living mortal can reproduce the manner of the things of the Jews from Nephite's day, 
The closer we try to match that, the better our chances of understanding Isaiah properly and Nephi's use of Isaiah specifically. Nephi provides another way to understand Isaiah. Quote, The words of Isaiah are not plain unto you. Nevertheless, they are plain unto all those that are filled with the spirit of prophecy. Unquote. That's 2 Nephi 25.4. The Holy Ghost can teach an individual things that are unavailable through scholarship. Quote, For the Spirit speaketh the truth, and lieth not. Wherefore, it speaketh of things as they really are, and of things as they really will be. Wherefore, these things are manifested unto us plainly, for the salvation of our souls. Jacob 4.13 But there is a rub. Revelation that we receive has to be within the sphere of our stewardship. The only ones who can speak their revelation for the whole church are those who have been, quote, ordained by someone who has authority and is known to the church that he has authority and has been regularly ordained by the heads of the church. Doctrine and Covenants 42.11 Scholarship and Revelation Nephi obviously recognized that there were two ways to understand the words of Isaiah, what we would call scholarship and revelation. In our modern world, there is often a curious tension between these two approaches. As Hugh Nibley once said, the prophet recognizes the scholar for what he is, but the scholar does not return the compliment. He cannot conceive how anyone could possibly acquire knowledge by any method other than his. He cannot believe that any man has experienced anything which he has not experienced. This would explain repeated efforts by historians who know no language but English to redefine Joseph Smith's translations into anything other than the process of making, quote, aversion from one language or form of words into another. It should go without saying that neither I, nor Spencer, nor Parry, nor any other similar commenter on Isaiah has been ordained or sustained to any position of prophetic authority for the church. Therefore, the only authority that any of us can claim to possess must derive from the quality of our scholarship. This is precisely where I have concerns about Spencer's book, and I will shortly outline some reasons for these concerns. Over half a century ago, Hugh Nibley addressed the issue of authority of scholars by saying that they should be respected, quote, for that knowledge and proficiency which they have demonstrated to the world, unquote. Otherwise, again quoting, they invite legitimate censure, unquote, since they, quote, parade as scholars without being scholars, unquote. He further warned scholars associated with the Latter-day Saint community against being, quote, like a man setting out to explore a wonderful cavern without bothering to equip himself with either lights or ropes, unquote. As an antidote, Nibley recommended returning, quote, to the program of the School of the Prophets and the University of Nauvoo, which was the acquisition of basic knowledge, usually or especially languages, for the avowed purpose of aiding the spreading of the gospel, unquote. This is because, quote, all knowledge of the past, historical, philosophical, literary, religious, etc., comes to us through written texts which cannot be critically examined or understood in translation, unquote. Spencer's Approach here I will deal only with Isaiah chapter 7 through 12 and with Spencer's treatment of them. 
The prophecy in these chapters was given on the occasion of a plot by the kings of Samaria and Damascus to conquer Judah and replace its king Ahaz with their own tribute-paying puppet. Anyone familiar with the histories of the various kingdoms of the period will recognize this as an oft-repeated scenario and that no nation did it more successfully than the Assyrians. To us it may seem hackneyed, but back then it was a high-stakes game with many losers. Isaiah's message to Ahaz was that things would go well in the short term and even better in the long term, which they did. Of chapters 6 through 12 in Isaiah, Spencer asserts that, quote, we've got to look at them carefully, unquote. He claims that we need, quote, to read the passage in context, unquote, that is, in, quote, both textual and historical context. Spencer thinks that there is much to be gained by reading these chapters through the lens of secular scholars because, quote, biblical scholars make arguments for their conclusions and their arguments about the relatively unchristian scope of much of the Hebrew Bible are generally good ones, unquote. Spencer accepts the line of reasoning of many biblical scholars and claims that, quote, before any one scholar can make a contribution to the question of the messianic here, she first has to establish what she takes to be the basic textual history of these chapters, and that will always be a rather controversial position, unquote. Spencer then attributes the position of modern scholars to the ancient inhabitants of Jerusalem. To quote, Nephi reads certain parts of Isaiah messianically, even as he recognizes that his predecessors may seldom, if ever, have been able to do that, unquote. He provides no evidence for this assertion. A close reading of a text should be careful about the assumptions it makes, particularly about importing assumptions at odds with the text. Spencer asserts that the reader is, quote, free to see in Isaiah 6.12 two rival interpretations of the text, one non-messianic, or at least not messianic in any strong sense, and one messianic in a strong sense, unquote. Of these two rival interpretations, Spencer recognizes the latter, but seems to lean toward the non-messianic. Quote, There's very little reason for seeing Isaiah's prophetic sign as referring to Jesus. It makes little sense in context to understand it as a reference to Jesus. How would the birth of Jesus seven and a half centuries away serve as a sign to Ahaz regarding the eminent demise of his enemies? Unquote. Spencer ignores the fact that even if one assumes the prophecy referred to Jesus, it would still be true. He claims that, quote, we're far too quick to find Jesus in Isaiah, privileging traditionally messianic passages over everything else because we think we can see Christian themes in the prophet, unquote. Spencer asserts that Isaiah 9 is, quote, already closer to the question of the messianic, unquote, but only in the sense that, quote, what's predicted here is a Davidic king who will finally get some things right, unquote. On the other hand, quote, if we think the prediction of any decent Davidic king amounts to a messianic prophecy, then we've got a messianic prophecy here. If we think messianic prophecy must include something bigger than that, an anticipation of a figure who will bring history to a kind of an end, 
suspend the law in fulfilling righteousness and usher in an era of unending peace, then we're arguably not yet dealing with a messianic prophecy, unquote. Dispenser, quote, It seems pretty clear that Isaiah's prophecy here is focused primarily on Ahaz's son Hezekiah. It seems pretty clear that he's got Hezekiah in mind, unquote. A major historical mistake. Despite Spencer's admonition that Isaiah 6-12 through 12 needs to be read in context, the reading he presents is neither close nor careful. In fact, it is an impossible reading. To understand why, we need to look more carefully at the historical context that Spencer commends to us. We can do so by noting two overlooked passages. The first of these is in Second Kings, to quote, Now it came to pass in the third year of Hosea, son of Elix, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. Twenty and five years old was he when he began to reign, and he reigned twenty and nine years in Jerusalem. His mother's name also was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. Unquote. Second Kings eighteen one through two. The second passage is slightly earlier in Second Kings. Quote, Ahaz reigned sixteen years in Jerusalem and did not that which was right in the sight of the Lord his God, like David his father. Unquote. Second Kings sixteen two. Now, if Ahaz ruled for sixteen years and his son Hezekiah took over at the age of twenty-five then Hezekiah was born before Ahaz began to rule, before he was king. So when Isaiah prophesied to Ahaz while he was king about the birth of a child, if there is one person the prophecy cannot be about, it is Hezekiah. With that, Spencer's entire case for Isaiah 6.12 being about Hezekiah collapses. His reading of Isaiah as prophesying about Hezekiah makes no sense in the historical context. There are clearly aspects of the historical context that we do not fully understand, such as what Ahaz may have thought the sign meant and how it may have been meant to persuade him. At the very least, Ahaz would have known that he needed at least nine months plus however long it took a child to, quote, know to refuse the evil and choose the good, unquote, Isaiah 7.16 before he could expect the threat to be completely removed. Yet, since Ahaz's son Hezekiah was past that point, Ahaz would not have been expecting the prophecy to refer to Hezekiah, and neither would have Isaiah. Ignoring Hebrew, again. Of course, Spencer brings in other arguments against understanding the chapters as referring to a messiah. He argues that the translation, quote, the mighty God, unquote, in Isaiah 9-6, is in error. He prefers, quote, hero warrior, or one mighty in valor. This enables him to claim that, quote, Isaiah may not exactly have meant to indicate that anyone about to be enthroned was fully divine, unquote. The problem is that without having examined the original Hebrew himself, Spencer is left at a disadvantage with no option but to uncritically accept other translations as accurate. But because, quote, we believe the Bible to be the word of God as far as it is translated correctly, unquote, Article of Faith 1.8, 
Latter-day Saints do not need to accept bad translations. In this case, the King James Version is superior to the more recent translations cited by Spencer. The Hebrew term in question is El Gibor. However one chooses to translate Gibor, strong, mighty, etc., the term El does not mean hero or one mighty, but God. Still, we should look at how Isaiah uses the term. This is the textual context that Spencer says is critical. According to Isaiah, the Egyptians are men and not El. Men make an El when they make a graven image, and they pray to that El. The stars belong to El. The Lord says, I am El, and there is no other. Isaiah also points out that El is holy and will be sanctified in righteousness. And of course, thus saith Yahweh, the El, as in Isaiah 42.5. Isaiah never uses the term El to mean something that is not claimed to be divine. Spencer has made an assertion completely backwards, precisely because he did not and cannot look at the Hebrew and as a result completely ignored the textual context. Another error relating to Hebrew is Spencer's allegation that, quote, the Hebrew word translated as virgin doesn't, strictly speaking, mean virgin. It means young woman, unquote. Here again, though, a close examination of that Hebrew word weakens his claim. The term used in Isaiah 7.14, almach, is a lesser-used, more poetic synonym for a young woman or virgin. The term is also used in the meaning virgin in Proverbs 30.19, translated in the King James Version as maid, as also is arguably the case in Genesis 24.43. In all uses of the term, and especially given the cultural context of the Hebrew Bible, the notion of virgin is in the very least implied. Finally, let's consider another place where familiarity with Hebrew would have helped Spencer better understand the textual context of the passage he is attempting to explain. Spencer claims that reading the messianic prophecies in Isaiah has been, quote, put on hold, unquote, because a scholar, quote, has to establish what she takes to be the basic textual history of these chapters, unquote. This proposal assumes, without argument or perhaps much critical reflection, that the text of this portion of Isaiah has been put together from various authors who wrote at different times, sometimes significantly later than Isaiah, many after Lehi left Jerusalem. Isaiah 7 through 12 has a number of leitmotifs that unify the composition, but these are obliterated in the translation. Isaiah actually draws attention to the leitmotifs when he says, following the King James Version, quote, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord hath given me are for signs and for wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts. Isaiah 8.18 Throughout Isaiah 7-12, through 12, there are word plays and references to Isaiah and the various children named in the passage. Let us consider each of these in turn. Now, at this point, I, the reader, must insert a disclaimer that I do not speak Hebrew or any Semitic languages, and therefore cannot vouch for the proper pronunciations of these words. We will start with Isaiah himself. The name Yeshua Yahu 
means the Lord, Yahu, will save. Its spelling, Yeshua, is close to the spelling for the term for salvation, Yeshu. The name appears at the beginning of the section, Isaiah 7-3, while the latter term appears three times at the end of the section, Isaiah 12, 2-3, forming an inclusio for the entire passage. Isaiah is instructed to bring his son, Shir Jashub, with him, Isaiah 7-3. The name Shir Yashub can be translated either, quote, the remnant shall return, or the rest will repent. There are direct uses of the name elsewhere in the passage, Isaiah 10-20, 21 and 22, as well as word plays on this name throughout the passage. Isaiah 9, 11, 12, 16, 20, 10, 4, 19, 11, 11, 16, and 12, 1. The next person mentioned is the prophesied child, Emmanuel, whose name in Hebrew, Emmanuel, means God is with us. This name is repeated three times in the prophecy, Isaiah 7, 14, 8, 8, and 10, in the King James Bible is transliterated two times and translated once. Finally, we have the child with the extremely long name, Maher Shalal Hashbaz, Isaiah 8.1.3. The name Maher Shalal Hashbaz means the pillaging hastens, the plundering hurries. Although the name is not repeated with another meaning, there are word plays referencing the name throughout the section. Isaiah 8, 4, 9, 2, 10, 2, and 6. These sections also have a number of repeated units that follow a particular form. A, crime, B, punishment, E, epistrophe, or catchphrase. Quote, For all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Note that the leitmotifs are used in the repeated units. These leitmotifs pervade and unify the passage into a rhetorical whole. Editorial insertions tend to destroy rhetorical devices and structure. Hypothesizing the textual history destroys the structural cohesion of the text and should thus prompt Spencer to question the assumption that these passages are a late conglomerate of sources. His unfamiliarity with the base language renders such evidence opaque to him and thus to his audience. He might appeal to other evidence to support his assumption that the text is the result of many layers of redaction, but he has not done so, save via the appeal to authority. Being unable to critique those authorities on their own ground, he is unfortunately not able to weigh their evidences for himself. Looking forward to the Messiah. Let's return to Spencer's contention that, quote, there's no full-blooded scholarly consensus on whether Isaiah 6.12 contains messianic prophecies, unquote. This puts the emphasis on the scholarly consensus, which is the wrong place on which to focus, especially if Spencer is unable to weigh the merits of the various scholarly voices because he is not able to analyze the original language about which those voices speak. Furthermore, there is little, if any, scholarly consensus on anything in biblical studies. But Spencer goes further and asserts that, quote, if there is consensus about anything regarding the Messianic in Isaiah 6.12, it's that this text isn't Messianic, unquote. He is demonstrably wrong. 
Targum Jonathan is the name currently given to a Jewish translation of the Hebrew Bible into Aramaic that reached its final form in the late 2nd or early 3rd century AD. Despite the final date of its composition, it contains a number of elements that go back to earlier times. We do not necessarily know how much earlier in any given case. The attribution of the Targum to Jonathan is a Mitra attribution. It was originally known as the Targum Jerusalem, and it contains interpretations that circulated around the area of Jerusalem and Galilee. The translation is mostly literal, but it is also idiomatic and cultural, giving the sense and understanding of the reading. Targum Jonathan for Isaiah 7.12 contains four direct references to the Messiah, demonstrating that ancient Jews took this entire prophecy to be messianic. The first of these is the famous passage that reads in the King James Version, quote, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Isaiah 9.6 In the Targum Jonathan it reads, in my unpoetic translation, quote, The prophet said to the house of David, Behold, a boy will be born to us, a son will be given to us. He has covenanted to keep the law. His name has been called from the beginning. The miracle worker, counsel, the mighty God who lives forever, the Messiah in whose days peace will increase upon us. Unquote. Ancient Jews explicitly understood this passage as a messianic prophecy. The second reference to the Messiah comes in the next chapter. The King James has the somewhat enigmatic, quote, And it shall come to pass in that day that his burden shall be taken away from off thy shoulder, and his yoke from off thy neck, and the yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing, unquote. That's Isaiah 10.27. The Targum Jonathan here has, quote, And it shall come to pass at that time his dominion shall be removed from you, and his yoke from off your neck, and the nations will become desolate, before the Messiah, unquote. The third reference is in the following chapter. In the King James translation, this appears as, quote, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots, unquote, Isaiah 11.1. 1. Targum Jonathan is more explicit, quote, And the king will proceed from the sons of Jesse, and the Messiah will be anointed from his descendants, unquote. Finally, a few verses later, where the King James translation has, quote, The wolf shall also dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them, unquote. Isaiah 11.6 Targum Jonathan has, quote, In the days of the Messiah of Israel, peace will increase in the earth, and the wolf shall stable with the lamb, and the tiger will dwell with the kid, and the calf and the lion and the fatling together, and the suckling child shall lead them. Once again, ancient Jews explicitly understood this text to be messianic. This interpretation was not imposed by Christians reading something back into the text that was not originally there. And indeed, we must remember that the earliest Christians were all Jews and did not invent entirely foreign or novel ways of seeing their sacred texts. Although we may not know how far back these messianic understandings go, they are ancient and Jewish, not modern and Christian.
Spencer confuses the matter by claiming that, quote, Messianic prophecy would be prophecy that anticipates a Messiah. However, that Messiah figure is understood, unquote. In the Targum Jonathan of these passages, however, the term Messiah is always accompanied by the definite article. These are not references to a generic deliverer, but a singular, specific Messiah. Conclusions Spencer thinks that Latter-day Saints are, quote, far too quick to find Jesus in Isaiah, unquote, and urges his readers to, quote, stop looking for Jesus in Isaiah, unquote. This is a very odd attitude to take in a book that claims to want to, quote, read Isaiah like Nephi, unquote. Nephi, on the other hand, claims that Isaiah, quote, verily saw my Redeemer, even as I have seen him, Second Nephi 11.2. Nephi also says, quote, that I may more fully persuade my brethren to believe in the Lord their Redeemer, I did read unto them that which was written by the prophet Isaiah, unquote. First Nephi 19.23. According to Nephi, quote, According to the words of the prophets, the Messiah cometh in six hundred years from the time that my father left Jerusalem, and according to the words of the prophets, and also the word of the angel of God. His name shall be Jesus Christ, the Son of God, unquote. Second Nephi 25.19 According to its title page, the whole point of the Book of Mormon is to convince people that, quote, Jesus is the Christ, the eternal God, unquote. To stop looking for Jesus in Isaiah is to read Isaiah contrary to the way that Nephi read him, and contrary to his purpose in including these texts in his record. By training, Joseph Spencer is a philosopher, not a philologist. With the vision of all, he has ventured into territory where at least some philological expertise would have been very helpful. James Falconer's rule about the value of knowing the original language of a text when writing a commentary on it remains wise counsel. One should feel free to explore the cave, but one ought to take a light. John Gee is the William Gay Research Professor in the Department of Asian and Near Eastern Languages at Brigham Young University. This has been a recording of How Not to Read Isaiah by John Gee, published in Interpreter, a Journal of Latter-day Saint Faith and Scholarship, Volume 37, 2020. Read by Richard Fligger. This audio recording is copyrighted under a Creative Commons license and may be freely distributed if it remains unchanged, the journal and its website are credited, and is for non-commercial use. A printed version of this and many other articles can be found at journal.interpreterfoundation.org. More information about the Interpreter Foundation, along with a wide array of additional resources, can be found at interpreterfoundation.org.